Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, this is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Rowinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. Hello, my name is Patrick O'Donnell from Vancouver, Canada, and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. Well, thank you, Patrick, for your backing and to everybody else that has backed the Tennis Podcast in 2020. Much appreciated. It's why we're here and we are going to get cracking with our first ever Tennis Relived, where in the absence of live tennis, Catherine, Matt and myself are going to go back in time from our lockdown bunkers. We're going to start with two matches from Miami. Uh, given that this is ordinarily the the show in which we'd be reviewing the Miami final weekend. We'll then relive matches from Monte Carlo, Madrid, Rome, Queens, and then daily during the French Open dates, uh, Roland Garros, uh, which won't have a French Open in it. Uh, well, it'll have a tennis podcast daily in it. And then we'll be reliving Wimbledon daily as well at the end of June and July. We're going to start with Miami 1999 uh, with Serena against Venus Williams in the final, their first ever final meeting. Then we'll have Andy Murray against David Ferrer in 2013. How about that, Catherine? How was it? We did it over the weekend. We were watching these matches in unison, the three of us. And for the most part, it worked. Occasionally, the internet went down and required a quick rewind. But it was a good laugh, wasn't it, to watch these matches and go back in time? It it really was. It was a really... um really enjoyable experience i've i've long felt that um kind of the 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 or i say long but mostly hit home for me at the australian open this year actually oh back when tennis happened um was that i regret that we don't watch more tennis together the three of us or or yeah. combinations thereof it was so enjoyable in australia being able to watch tennis with matt i mean obviously that was live tennis before our very eyes <laughs> uh, <laughs> which was great but in the absence of the possibility of of that um yeah it was really really enjoyable to experience a tennis match the the three of us and um two very different tennis matches um and mm. yeah it was, it was it was great genuinely great i mean my standards of what counts as top-notch entertainment are rock bottom at the moment <laughs> <laughs> so don't be too flattered <laughs> but it was oh. i might even go so far as to say it was 
it was more enjoyable than completing my jigsaw, which is or my latest jigsaw, which is what I also did yesterday. Lofty praise. Lofty praise. What was the what was the first match that you two remember watching of Serena and Venus Williams? Because obviously you'll remember the twenty thirteen match with Murray and Ferrer very well. You both saw that, but I imagine neither one well, Matt, you were you were barely out of nappies when this match was played and uh, and Catherine you'd have been about thirteen. So can you remember the first time the first match you would have seen of these two? Against each other, for me yeah. Probably the 2000 and I think it was 2008 Wimbledon final they played against each other. Pro- probably would have been that one. I should probably already have thought about this, but I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know. Um, I, I remember first becoming aware of the, the two of them individually and the, the fact that they were sisters, which which really captured my attention. I remember the beads very vividly. I would have been a a sort of 11, 12-year-old girl at the time and cool, interesting hair was definitely a thing that got my attention. Um, And the fact that they were so young and, and, yeah, disrupting things. Um, But I don't think I have a vivid memory of their first... the, the, the them playing one another. I mean, I obviously remember their their matches and I I regret I regret that I didn't enjoy or appreciate them at the time Uh, you know when they were meeting in in lots of Grand Slam finals I greeted that with a bit of an eye roll really and didn't and just thought oh it's going to be weird Um, I'm not going to be able to support anyone it kind of went contrary to all of the the things that I enjoyed about sport, you know, atmosphere and drama and tension and, and partisanship. Um, but now looking back, I there's so much more texture to it all that that makes me want to, to go back and enjoy it with fresh eyes, which is what we're able to do with Tennis Relived. Yeah. Well, that was the beauty of it. Uh, to, to give some perspective... 1999 March stroke April in Miami and this was the first final meeting between the two Bill Clinton was the president of the United States the euro had just replaced the French franc the Spanish peseta and the German mark amongst others the Kosovo war was underway Marketa Vondrasova was born (laughs) that year the term podcast would not be coined for a further five years i was 25 it was the year before i met my wife Catherine was 13 what were you doing Catherine? just just being a, a cool cat all over all over the the greater reading area and if you want proof of that just go on our instagram page where you'll see pictures of Catherine, aged 13 and matthew were three uh not even three at the time of the miami final yeah, and there's a beautiful picture of Matt as a two-year-old with blonde hair on our Instagram. Page. Yeah, we're doing these old photos for every year where we're covering a past match. I've definitely peaked in 1999. All <laughs> <laughs> all future photos will will not be me in such a good light. I I, I enjoy having that one to start with. Uh, Venus Williams was 18. Serena was 17. They'd played twice before. 
Venus had won both of them, including at the Australian Open. Neither had yet won a slam. Uh, and Serena had just won Indian Wells, beating Steffi Graf in the final just a couple of weeks so earlier. I was looking, and they both had a really bad Australian Open. And there's a, there's a there's an amazing quote from Serena where she says, "I felt I wasted my time during the Australian season when I could have I could have been at home with my dog." Relatable content. Absolutely, she said it was a waste of time and money, and I decided I could no longer travel if I was going to continue in that manner. Things had to change. So she'd lost. She'd lost in uh, the third round of the Australian Open and the second round of Sydney. So she had a bad time against who? Uh, Steffi Graf in Sydney and Sandrine Testu in Melbourne. Oh, I remember her quite well. Um, yeah. But- but Blimey. then she comes into this Miami tournament, well, this final against Venus on a 16-match winning streak. So she's completely turned her form around after giving those quotes. Um, so she won the Paris Indoor title, and then she won, as you said, Indian Wells the week before Miami. So Serena actually comes into this match against Venus in incredible form. Uh, and they were both playing so much tennis so many tournaments at the time weren't they you know the fact that she played the Paris indoors tournament which was the direct week before Indian Wells um and Venus had played that week as well at a different tournament um and I think you were saying while we were watching that that there were rumors that that was a deliberate you know orchestrated thing from Richard Williams that they would play in different locations so that they were prevented from from playing one another and then in the in the post-match interview after the the Miami final on the court which we will definitely talk about it because it was a thing of absolute joy the two of them together they both referenced the fact that they were getting on a plane um the next day and going to play somewhere else you know they were week in week out tennis players which I suppose is what you'd expect from from two young players climbing up the rankings trying to get points on the board and and get confidence and improve but my goodness me it's a it's a contrast to to what they've been in the in the past decade really possibly even a bit more well if you consider that they're they're even playing still today 21 years on it's it is absolutely crazy to think that Um, Maybe I'm jumping ahead a bit here, but there's a quote that Serena gave after the final. She was asked, are you worried that constantly playing against your sister is going to be something that perhaps ruins your relationship with her? You know, you've talked about how you're best friends, you do things together. And she says, well, no, because tennis isn't for a lifetime. Tennis is maybe for 10 years. (laughs) And here we are 21 years later and they're still playing. Um, Wow. I just love quotes like that. Yeah, well, she and she's been caught a few times like that. And I mean, who wouldn't be? You, how, you can't predict your future quite in quite that way. I mean, just to, to give an insight that, as I said, it was 2-0 two, two to, to Venus. And then she wins the first set and, and so wins the first five sets in uh, a row. Yeah, yeah. She hadn't, at this stage, Serena hadn't won a, a set against Venus. She hadn't even, the, the commentators... Um, Tracy Austin and and a chap called Tim Ryan, who we're now very familiar with, now 81 years of age, Tim, if you're listening. Um, They referenced the fact that Serena hadn't performed well in uh, either of the previous meetings with Venus, in particular the one at the Australian Open 
the year before when I, th- I think they described her being crippled with nerves by by the occasion, which is an amazing thought. Mm. And I mean, it eventually becomes a, a tussle. It's a three set match, but it's 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 ultimately won by Venus. But it was to more than more than the tennis strokes, more than the match, and, the, and we'll talk about the tennis that that we saw played. Really, I think the thing that struck us all most, and it kind of brought back memories for me, but I think it probably surprised both of you, were the the degree to which Richard Williams was centre stage throughout the whole match. He was. He was the ever-present. He was where the camera was going, which you would probably expect it to. But rather than the camera just focusing on this perhaps worried-looking man in the, the corner who's watching his, his daughters, he was lapping it up. He was he was milking the attention, quite honestly. He was orchestrating it, wasn't he? Yeah, with a whiteboard. <laughs> yeah, bring back whiteboards. Yeah, I mean, how can the camera not be on him when he's ho- holding up a whiteboard with changing messages on it? Um of which more in a moment. Um, it was it was a really startling sight because you've got Serena and Venus who, you know, are are are, are relishing in the the tennis and the competition of it all, but are clearly uncomfortable with the fact of playing the their sister. They they're clearly finding the occasion weird and muted. And then you've got Richard Williams in the crowd seeing it as the best day of his and his family's life and wanting to highlight as much as possible the fact that it's two sisters playing against one another, his two daughters, whereas the the daughters themselves are trying to shrink away from that element of it. Um, what did the what did the whiteboard say uh, um, when when the match started? What was the uh, first message on it? I think it was something like "Welcome to the Williams Show," uh, which he which he yeah. held up just before it was about to start. And then it quickly changed to "I told you so." I told you this would happen. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, don't, don't forget there are there's video footage. There were documentaries made of them several years earlier, where he was in fact saying these are going to be the best players mm. in the world. And my daughter. He gave a press conference prior and post the final. You know, so so they spoke to both Serena and Venus, but also Richard. Um, and and he said, "This is what I've been planning my whole life." You know, use the word planning. It, you know, he he was raising them for this. Um, so to finally see them together in a final, you could just tell how sort of proud and happy and excited he was. And the Fox um, Sports reporter did an interview with him after the first set um in the in the players box when he was just unbelievably candid he said uh, venus had, had won the first set and it, it hadn't been particularly close had it serena serena was definitely more troubled by the occasion which you'd expect she was the less experienced at this stage even though she was coming in on on better form um and he said yeah serena was pretty rubbish but she'll uh, she'll come back in the second set i'm cheering for her and then he held up the whiteboard which said go serena go yeah at the start of the second <laughs> Unbelievable. set and he he's, he said in that interview as well he said it's the most exciting thing that i've ever had happen in my life it couldn't happen to a better family and i mean look he was just 
full of the joys because of 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 that moment but but it's quite interesting how there was no attempt to downplay it there was no sort of modesty about it and false modesty he was just incredibly proud and he wanted everybody to know about it and it, it brought back memories to me of how not everybody was okay with that it, it rubbed some people up the wrong way and i and i i as the match was going on it, it brought back all sorts of memories to me of how how the williams family was viewed with suspicion with in a way that that i really i'm quite i feel quite embarrassed about now thinking back about it i'm i'm, I'm sort of embarrassed for the world of that was watching it and i'm embarrassed myself personally because I kind of went along with that. I, I I didn't rail against that notion as I I feel confident I would now. I did. I, I they were they were re- viewed in many quarters. I think as sort of gate crashers of 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 the tennis world. And and let's be honest, it it, it probably just highlights therefore the structures that were in place in tennis of it being almost not not entirely but a but a massively white world of privilege and um somebody who didn't fit that description coming in and just very honestly and bullishly saying my girls are gonna come and beat everybody and then them doing it was was taken I mean, it wasn't taken that well, to be quite honest. And then, as you described, Catherine, at the start, the kind of feeling that people got when when their matches took place, nobody knew where to put themselves. Nobody knew how to take this. And it ended up being, because you saw situations like Richard Williams there at the start of set two, because and when Serena is behind, he's holding up a go Serena, go sign. People ended up thinking, this is fixed. He's fixing this. He's arranging this. He's he wants Serena to win this one because she hasn't won the last two. And um I mean I put myself in his position and I'm thinking, well, what would I want? I I would I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily want my one of my kids to beat up on the other one uh, j- just to to the to the point of 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 one of them being devastated, but that doesn't mean that I'm fixing the results. Um, and I think, I mean, and I'm, I feel pretty strongly that that that, that didn't happen. But it was just an an example of the the kind of suspicion that was around at the time. Yeah, and that um, that analysis makes me think of the article that Jonathan Liu, who was then at the Independent, uh, wrote about the Serena Williams um, U.S. Open final of 2018 incident which was not defending her actions not 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 talking about whether or not she was in the wrong but just understanding them saying saying giving that context that you've just just described she she and her sister that family were treated as imposters treated as other viewed with suspicion right from the very start of their career and throughout and and that context is is important how you can understand her her feeling like the world is the world is out to to get me the world's out to to screw me that you you know that if if that's been your experience throughout your life 
being viewed that way that that changes things in your in your mind and um that was such it was such a powerful article to read at the time and really um just put a, a slightly different complexion on on that incident um regardless of whether or not her actions were were right they are in the context of things or were in the context of things understandable perhaps and just that that suspicion wasn't under the surface it was right there from everyone in the game i was really taken aback as i was doing my research for this by a quote that martina hingis gave who serena had beaten along the way to get to this final against venus and she was asked well do you think Serena is now ready to beat Venus? And she said, well, in the past, it's felt like she wasn't allowed to win. You know, it was like, it's it's always been Venus's time. You know, she, Venus has always been the one who was going to win almost before the match started because that was, that was the way that Richard wanted it to be, was kind of what uh, Hingis was implying, I think. And just to read those quotes now is really quite shocking to think that was coming from the number one player in the world at the time, that that was how people viewed the Williams sisters. When we were watching the match, we were talking about the crowd reactions and and the way I think it was it was viewed as this one big celebration of, of the sport and of this great story that I think, I think mostly American crowds lapped up the story. And over the years, I've whenever I've been at the US Open and they've played each other, it's been a far bigger story than anybody else in the game. Any Federer, Nadal, any of these players, the Williams sister story is the one that has really captured everybody. Now, obviously, we had the Indian Wells situation a couple of years later, which turned horribly for the worst. But I think that one of the the problems that people had, and again, I think it highlights a, an attitude within the sport and within the world the watching world that really makes me feel uncomfortable now is that people didn't view themselves as Serena Williams or Venus Williams fans they re- they they talked about them as sisters in every breath they were never re- regarded individually for for many many years i think it's it's much more recently that Serena Williams has has become an a real icon on her own over and above them being the Williams sisters. Um, but all of it, I still get uncomfortable when I think back to it because I was part of it. I was part of that watching world. Um, at the time, I was working for the for the ATP uh, on the men's side and as a communications manager. And, and a, just a, a little example of that, I think it was in 2001, I went to a tournament in Mallorca and there was a player called Carsten Brasch who was playing there, German player, and he'd been the player that had challenged both of them to a match at the Australian Open in 1998. He 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 told me I I remember hearing about the story, and you won't be surprised to hear that the attitude I had at the time was, oh, what a great interview that'd be! I'm going to interview Carsten Brush, you know, and I'm going to make some publicity out of this story for for the ATP Tour, who is who I was working for. I just all I could think of was great publicity opportunity for men's tennis which is what I was promoting so I'll interview the male player about the day he played the Williams sisters who were the biggest stars in the game uh, in 2001 and I kind of thought he might shrink away from doing the interview I thought the I thought the men's tour might shrink away from me doing the interview because they might not want that sort of publicity but when I mentioned it they couldn't have been happier to do it. He could, he was delighted to do it. 
um the tour when i told them about it they said oh yeah great idea you know there was no I mean, I, I'm in, again. I'm, I feel quite embarrassed about it now. Um, but I did the interview. He, he, he was candid, but quite, quite, quietly mocking in the way he talked about how he'd beaten them. Um, and it was always viewed with kind of laughter and gentle scorn, really. And and yeah, it just shows. I think the way the world was i mean i'm sure there, there's still some of that now but there's the people are a lot more media trained these days to avoid getting themselves in that sort of position and i think i think it's important to give a bit of the context of men's and women's tennis at this time i was alerted to the fact that this final between the williams sisters actually took place on the sunday uh, of of the miami fortnight rather than the saturday as we so often see the women's final be in now i wondered whether that was a, a way the tournament was structured back then sort of always so i checked the year before i checked 1998 and i checked the year after 2000 and the men's final was on the sunday both of both of those editions of the tournament so it, it suggests to me that it was a little bit of a one-off um but the players were asked about it they were asked do you think that this you know it is women's tennis it isn't under the shadow of men's tennis anymore. It was a really exciting time for women's tennis. You had the Williams sisters coming through. You had Hingis. You had Davenport. You had the end of Graf and Celes. And it, it's notable. It's, it's very notable how the Williams sisters talked about themselves as bringing a change to women's tennis. You know, they were very respectful of the past of women's tennis, but they were talking about how they were taking it to a different level. They were talking about... They think they've added some power. They think they've added to the to the movement. They think they've added to the personalities in the game. And something that struck me while I was doing my research for this is that Richard Krychek was actually the the guy who won Miami 1999. Um, so he'd played the day before this Williams Sisters final. And he'd given some very inflammatory and really shocking quotes about the state of women's tennis back in the early 90s um and he was asked again seven years later at this at this final do you think that your comments have have spurred on the women to be better and i just i hated the way that question was framed Ugh. as though as those you know <laughs> richard christ should be thanked for saying as if that horrible women things. everywhere are thinking Oh, that Richard Krychek must. Uh, ugh, yeah, yeah. And, and fair play to him. To him, he completely played that down. He said, "No, I, I'm embarrassed by those comments, and I've learned, and I have, I have a lot of respect for the women's game. And right now, it is in a better place than men's tennis. It is more interesting. I get that. And he was, he was, he seemed like a reformed character seven years on from from the original quotes he'd given. I've spoken to him since then, in maybe ten, maybe seven or eight years ago. I asked him about what he'd said, and I remembered it vividly. I think it was 1992 mm, at Wimbledon. It. He said something like 75% of female players are pigs or something like that and couldn't couldn't beat anybody. Um, and um, Martina Navratilova absolutely ended him in, 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 her, in her press conference that followed that when it was put to her. Um, but I spoke to Richard, yeah, in the last 10 years anyway, and he was so, so embarrassed and so apologetic for that, even all these years on, you know, he 
Because, I mean, you couldn't meet a nicer bloke than Richard Krejcik um, as, a, as a fully grown adult is, is, is my defence of him. But, well, the words themselves were indefensible, really. It's so interesting, isn't it? I mean, kind of what you were saying earlier, David, I'm... I'm, I'm... <laughs> I'm I'm always torn in the sort of the, the, making comments or drawing conclusions about how much the world has changed um because I, I I'm I'm quite sure that there are still a lot of people who privately and maybe even in in locker rooms to other people have views like that um or or feel a, a version of of that kind of opinion but no, it is it is at least now completely unacceptable to say that out loud. Nobody would be well, <laughs> with possibly the odd notable exception over the years. Nobody would be stupid or arrogant enough to to say something like that casually. And and if they were to, you would you would do so in the full expectation that there would be uproar. I think, whereas back then, it was okay to say things like that, and it was treated as a. Well, when he said it, there was there was sniggering in the room when he mm. said it. You know, the the assembled press conference media. I think he said something like eighty percent of all female players are fat, lazy, fat pigs, and and then he was asked if he was going to stand by that, and he said, "No, no, I've changed my mind. It's seventy five percent, something like that." And uh, and Martin and Avratilova said said in her one, well, I'd quite like to have a body fat index um, test against him because I'm quite sure I would beat him. Um, but the the whole thing just had you on on the back foot as a as a viewer now. Um, and like I say, he he would just recoil sheepishly and be so embarrassed if if uh and and, he, and he's had to he's had to face that question for the rest of his life since then i, I at least um, feel confident that there wouldn't be sniggering in a press conference room if if anybody said that no. now so that's that's changed what, uh, i suppose what did you think of the other elements to the match the the tennis that you saw the presentation you mentioned it was it was on fox sports which I've never known do tennis since then. Tracy Austin, as you said, was the the co commentator. The the some of the graphics were making us laugh, weren't they? Instead of statistics, they they at the start of the match they'd just got serve, volley, backhand, forehand, and and little ticks against which one of them were good. You know, yeah. The 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 graphics to set up the match implied that Venus Williams just didn't have a serve. Yeah, and Serena didn't have a volley. <laughs> Which, I mean, th that was one of the things that struck me. Serena Williams was really uncomfortable at the net, which perhaps you'd expect from a 17-year-old a that that hits and hit as hard as she did. It's obviously not something she'd needed to to develop at that that stage and she she has done massively over the course of her career but but Venus only a year older was good. She's obviously more of a natural at, at the net I would say Venus Williams and and yeah the trajectories of their careers at Wimbledon I suppose and Venus took to Wimbledon a lot more and, and grass a lot more naturally than than Serena did um, but I can confirm that in 1999 Venus Williams did have a serve and it was it was quite yes. good her movement was incredible in that match wasn't it that, that that's something I I think I've 
forgotten about because she's doing incredibly well as a 39 year old to play tennis at this level that she is but to see her age at 18 moving around the court that it felt like there was just no way past her yeah because i when i think of the williams sisters they have so many inc- incredible attributes that i don't necessarily put movement right at the top because i'm so used to seeing them in the sort of latter half of their career where it's good but it's not you know their their biggest weapon but i remember wimbledon last year actually i i just put i just put out a tweet saying simona hallett must be one of the best movers in women's tennis who else? And we, we were flooded with, with responses, people saying Steffi Graf, Kim Kleisters and prime Williams sisters, especially prime Venus, prime, prime Serena at the start of their careers. And watching this, I was completely struck by that, how powerful their movement was. They weren't just they weren't just getting to the ball. They were getting to the ball and getting behind the ball, open stance and hitting it back with power. It was it was ahead of its time is, is, is what it felt like. Yeah, nobody had, certainly nobody had an open stance backhand at, at that stage. And it hasn't, I mean, no, not nobody really has it now because you have to be so strong in your upper body to to be able to hit an open stance backhand. It looks, I mean, it, if you just see the shot without the tennis ball, if you see just the, the movement of the player in isolation, it looks pretty awkward, doesn't it? As you said, Matt, it looks like, particularly Venus's, it looks like she's kind of shoveling something. But it enables them to to hit with power even on the run even no matter what position on the court they are and it and it it gives them an extra half step because they don't have to plant the the front foot in order to hit the shot um and i mean uh, yeah aside from sort of serena's being slightly lackey in the volleying department they they just had everything didn't they it was so clear that they they had everything, and and <laughs> Tracy Austin said, uh, you know, it was a sort of throwaway comment. I think sort of towards the end of the second set, she said, "And I don't even think these two were even close to fulfilling their potential yet." <laughs> now that is a comment that has aged well, very well, because they ended up winning thirty singles Grand Slam titles between them after that point. So well done, Tracy. <laughs> um, and actually, it was six months later that Serena Williams went and won her first Grand Slam, and she was the first of the two to do so at the US Open. Which still blows my mind that Serena was the the first to win a Slam of the mm. two of them. Yeah, when you consider Venus reached the final of her first ever Slam in 1997 and then didn't win her first until 2000, where Serena got her first in 1999. Um, yeah, this was their first final. They went on to play... Well, they've They've played 12 now. So, um, you know, I think I think something that we should explain is kind of why we chose these matches that we've chosen. It's not necessarily because they're the best matches of all time or necessarily that we even all remember them. I think probably you remember this one, David. Maybe Catherine and I don't. But it just feels like the start of something with the Williams sisters. I think that there's a... I, I was reading that... A good line from Joel Drucker, the um, tennis writer and historian, really, I suppose. And, and he wrote that when they got to the final to play each other, he said that change sometimes is is undetectable. But then it felt like you could feel it. It felt really meaningful. And you knew that they were going to play many more times in the final of big events, even bigger events than Miami. Um 
So I think, you know, we chose it for that reason, really. And it turned out to be a great match as well. She, she was absolutely gutted to lose Serena, wasn't she? And and, and didn't well, hide that's it. it yeah. At the end, she ch- she kind of choked at the yeah. end, didn't she? The last couple of games. And, and I think there was, a, as you said earlier, a mental issue playing against Venus. And she suddenly started to spray the ball everywhere at the end. And, uh, and you could see that. We were talking about it. I, I, I felt as though it was like a younger sibling tantrum in a way. She can't handle defeat. I see it with my kids all the time. And uh, and she she's retained that. If you think of, of, of the years that she's played the sport, she's always been the one who's had the tantrums. Yeah. I, I, I wonder how what's chicken and what's egg with that, whether it's something sort of intrinsic to being a, a younger sister, a younger sibling that you've got. The, that was Freudian, wasn't it? Um, uh, for me, anyway, you've got that kind of chip on your shoulder, something to prove thing going on, whereas an older sibling, an older sibling perhaps more instinctively has a kind of protective um feeling towards the their younger system younger sibling and more instinctive discomfort towards beating them or causing them distress or whatever i don't know um but had the result been been the other way around which it very easily could have been as you said david i think it was it was four all in the in the deciding set and serena pretty much fell apart um, it was just a, a stream of errors from her at that point. Um, yeah, I think the reactions, the relative reactions would have been extremely different. I think Serena's celebration probably would would have been a bit less muted than, than Venus's and Venus would have been um, <laughs> uh, less obviously gutted perhaps than, uh, than Serena was. But they still did just an utterly charming joint interview on the court afterwards it was just delightful wasn't it and it's so lovely to see them see them like that as understandable as as it is given how famous they are what they've been through all of that um it's understandable that they've become more more closed off and less giving with the media but to to see them as unfiltered um, and unbridled as, as they were then was an absolute joy. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Hello Tennis Podcast listeners, David here. Now you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering Tennis Podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. So let's fast forward 14 years to 2013 when Tokyo was chosen to host the 2020 Olympics. Oh, Frozen that's a low blow, premiered. David. <laughs> Frozen premiered, Catherine. Yep. Nelson Mandela died, and Andy Murray would become the first British man since Fred Perry 77 years earlier to win the Wimbledon men's singles title. And However, a few months earlier than that... Matt Roberts went on, on work experience to, to Lille. Yes, so do have a look at our Instagram page to see Thanks Matt. For that, Catherine. <laughs> He looks and like he's been startled the, by a fire alarm in the photo. <laughs> most of the attention that has been garnered from that particular photo shoot that we've got on Instagram is of Catherine's hair, which is uh, sharp. And uh, I, I, I've seen various quotes, most people saying, oh, my word, love the hair, Catherine. One person said she would happily go to war with you in that hair. Style. It's funny, people, m- 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 not that... Well, I'm not going to finish that sentence. People mess with you less when you're a woman with short hair. There's something sort of, I, I, I don't know. It's like, oh, I'm not going to mess with her. I, I, I was just as scared of you then as I am now. <laughs> it was my Michelle Williams phase. I, lo- I loved having short hair, but um, it's quite high maintenance. I thought it'd be low maintenance because there's less of it. But um, you can't just throw it up in a bun. You have to always, but if you always do something if you with went it. Sort of, if you went self isolation proper short hair, that'd be all right. That'd be quite. You easy mean just shave my head? It? Yeah, I'm, I mean I'm doing that. I'd love to be the I sort of person be... that could pull that off, though. You could T- check out our Instagram page, folks. You'll see what I'm talking about. Uh, so that's what was happening in 2013 when Andy Murray played against David Ferrer. Now, when we chose this match, it felt pretty obvious why we'd chosen it at the time. But as the match was being rewatched on Sunday, whilst I was cooking Sunday dinner and Catherine and Matt weren't, um, certainly the first hour, I think we were all looking at each other wondering what on earth we'd pick this dud for. It was a bit ropey, it wasn't was it? Rubbish. Yeah, it was, a it was bit ropey. bad. It was there was nothing memorable about the first <laughs> hour of that match. Other, yeah. well, actually, other than Ferrer going five love up, which I had yeah. totally forgotten about. I was, I was, I was ready. I had snacks. I had drinks. <laughs> I was hunkered down for a kind of three-hour epic that I knew it was. And suddenly, Ferrer's five love up. I'm like, hang on a minute. Is this is this the match? <laughs> 
Have we got, have the, we wrong got the wrong one? Have they played twice <laughs> in Miami and we got it the wrong one? It was pretty weird, wasn't it? There oh. wasn't even any aggro or Andy Murray talking to himself or it was just blah. And it was so not what we expected from Andy Murray in that period. We were talking about what he was like under Lendl in 2012 and 2013. And what you mentioned, David, was so true about how he used to come out in big matches and just bring his best tennis right away. He, was, he would hit the forehand. He wasn't holding back. He was aggressive. No fashion. Just imposed no himself, about. didn't he? And here he was, five love down to David Ferrer. Yeah, he was really faffing. Absolutely. It, yeah. was a, it, it, was, it was like he walked on the court thinking, all right, I'll do a war of attrition in 40 degrees with David Ferrer, which isn't the game plan I'd have given him. But but it, but it is also sort of, the, there is an Andy Murray that you can understand quite fancies the idea of that um he wasn't fancying it two hours in was he when he looked as knackered as i've ever seen him that's not what he was trying for i don't think but i think once it once it started to get good there was a moment i think probably towards the end of the second set where we all started to say oh this is starting to get good you know and it's because the the rallies were lengthening murray was digging in he was clear and present and he was—he'd got that over my dead body look about him. Are you going to beat me, David? And and if you want to, and okay, my game, my big game that I've developed under Ivan Lendl. I mean, bear in mind, this is March 2013. He'd started with Lendl at the beginning of 2012. That had that incredible period of success already. That got to the semi-finals of the Australian Open. They'd won. They'd reached the Wimbledon final in 2012. Uh, where where he lost to Federer, then he'd won Olympic gold, and then he'd faced Djokovic in the final of the Australian Open, and and he, that was a four set battle as well, well and won battle. the US Open, of course. Yeah, sorry, how could I forget? He'd won the US Open, so he'd won his first Grand Slam. Um, so enormous amount of success. What was he three in the world, Matt? Yeah, yeah, exactly. He was three in the world, and I think that that Australian Open was the best tennis Murray played in a Slam that he didn't win. Um, it's the one. It's the it's the one time he beat Federer in a Slam, um, which Simon Briggs always refers to as the five set thrashing because Mario was just the better player throughout. Federer was the one hanging on, um, and then in, and then the final was the feather final where Mario was a set up, and then in the in the second set tie break he gets distracted by a feather between serves, double faults, and then a feather dropping out of the sky and just settling on the surface. And interrupting a point. Yeah, Feather just fell down and he double faults and loses his focus, his concentration, and he's never quite the same player again in that final. Now, you know, he might not have won that tiebreak even if the Feather hadn't come, but it was such a defining moment that I always just think of it as the Feather final. But I think, you know, the point is he was playing really good tennis in, in 2013. I think this is, you know, some of the best tennis he played in his whole career. Well, if you, in that period, he was having the beating of Novak Djokovic. Okay, he didn't win that particular final, but he won the US Open final. He It felt like he should have won it earlier as well. It felt like he he was manhandling Djokovic early on in that Australian Open final, and then he beat him in straight sets at Wimbledon. It felt like he had the bigger game. Lendl had just got inside his head and made him go out onto the court and impose himself in a way that he'd never done in the rest of his career. That was the big difference. Djokovic, though... At that Miami tournament had been taken out by Tommy Haas. Mm. 34-year-old yeah. Tommy Haas beat him 6-2, 6-4 for his, 
his first win over a world number one for 14 years. The last time he'd beaten a world number one was Andre Agassi in 1999. And he was playing majestic tennis with Tommy Haas over those couple of matches. I, I remember I was there. I was co- I was commentating on that tournament for BBC Radio. Uh, it was first that Ferrer match was the first time I ever commentated alongside Simon Briggs. But I remember the day before... When Murray had got through, I'd done all my reports, and then they said, "Look, we just give us a little a little update later on the Haas Ferrer match, just to let us know who's won, because it was middle of the night back home by then." And I remember leaving the site to go and get something to eat to watch it just remotely, and Haas was taking Ferrer out. He was playing every shot in the book, single-handed backhands gloriously cross-court down the line drop shots slices lobs the lot and he he just got edged out in the end by Ferrer and I was so much wanted to see Murray against Haas in the final because I remember being in Indian Wells I think in 2007 when they'd played each other in the semi-finals when Murray had rolled his ankle mid-match Haas had come out with a chair to put his leg up on because (laughs) Murray looked like he'd broken his leg and then Murray um, got up out of the chair, took the chair back that he'd got his leg up on, and promptly went and beat Tommy Haas. <laughs> and this was, and Haas had never forgotten this. And and it was around about the time that Virginia Wade had accused Murray of being a drama queen. Uh, and and Haas was asked about it, and he said, "Yeah, well, I mean, he does this stuff all the time, you know." And all it, all it was, all my sense of it was with Murray was that he when he rolled his ankle or something like that, he panicked. He absolutely panicked. And he thought, my career's over or my year's over or this is terrible. And he would just be in shock. Um, and and so people would think he was putting it on. I never thought he was putting it on. I think he was just panicking. And then he'd be all right. But Haas did not like that at all. So I desperately wanted to see the rematch between these two because they'd never played each other since. I mean, he is a drama queen in the sense that he lets you know how he's feeling. Uh, and w- watching the latter stages of that match unfold, probably from from mid to late stages of the second set, given that it's a a best of three set match Andy Murray looks as out on his feet as I've as I've ever seen him I do, I mean he looked like he might not be able to finish the match he looked like if you'd told him at that stage that there was an hour and a half to go he'd have just said no you're all right David it, it's yours he looked like he just wouldn't have been able to face it I mean he really was bent double leaning on his leaning on his racket doing that gasping for air thing where it's like no matter how deep you breathe the air doesn't come into your lungs which is that that feeling that you do get in intense humidity but then there's always that thing at the back of your mind we're thinking is he not is he I don't think he ever um makes stuff up I don't think he's ever fabricates situations but he he makes a meal of it for sure, he lets you know. So back in your mind, you're thinking, is he just laying it on a bit extra thick? And then David Ferrer starts to wilt. And and then David Ferrer just looks like he's knocked over by a, a gust of wind um, going down well, with cramp. Well, there was before that. Because, I mean, as you say, that third set, as it's evolving, well, it's about an hour and 20 minute third, third set, and uh, are they exchanging breaks? Yeah, serve in yeah. That so, third had, set, Matt? so the the third set starts with six consecutive breaks of serve. It's I mean, so neither weird. of them are playing well. But there's a 
There's a brilliant line from um, the Spanish newspaper El País, which did a match report of this after afterwards. And I just I was just reading it, and 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 they describe it at this point. They they kind of pick up their match report at three all in the in the final set, and they describe it. It's a horror film, a drama made up of unforced errors, tension, pain, and clenched teeth. Neither player can control their nerves or their ball in the wind and the humidity but their attitude makes up for their lack of success. Murray's ankle hurts, Frere's on the ground cramping, and the title will go to whoever manages to look more like himself, which I thought was a nice way of of putting it, because we know that they often both embrace those kinds of matches, but in this this situation, they're both... (laughs) kind of failing abjectly to actually play any anything that resembles good tennis until that point where then they did actually i wouldn't say it was a second win but they found something within them to make the match dramatic well, david ferrer found the trainer he had um mm. three three change of end change of end leg rubs um, which is obviously in that grey area of the rules where, I mean, technically treatment for for cramp falls under loss of conditioning. Um, so was he having treatment for cramp? I mean, it seemed patently clear that it was treatment for, for early stages of cramp. I mean, even so, you're not allowed more than two change of end treatments for the same injury. And, and of course, Andy Murray clocked that that's what was going on and started chuntering away to, to Cedric Murray uh, about it. But yeah, you knew at the stage that David Ferrer was having to have a leg massage that the the struggle <laughs> for both of them was very, very real. And they eventually get up to, it's 6-5 Ferrer, isn't it? And he's got match point. And this is, I mean, I was commentating on this match and just to put the conditions into perspective, I I was sitting in air conditioning, having a lovely time. That's a great perspective, Uh, David. Thanks. (laughs) Sitting. No, but but my point is that I went out (laughs) shortly before the match and I think I could last about 10 minutes walking uh, to get my coffee uh, to return to my air conditioned commentary box until such a point as I could get out of that, that humidity and heat. And to watch and i think that what what made it so startling and why we're doing this i mean the, there are two reasons one is because murray was on this crest of a wave trying to get up and win grand slam titles and eventually try to become world number one and let's not forget it took him another three and a half years before he managed to actually become world number one but here he was straining every sinew against the guy maybe Nadal aside, who's regarded as the fittest man in tennis and who never, ever runs out of gas. And here they were going toe-to-toe and he's match point down and in one mighty swipe of a forehand, he encapsulated what Lendl had brought to his game, which was go for it. When you're under the gun, go for it. Don't fiddle around and wait for the guy to miss. Pull the trigger, go for it, impose yourself and he hits the back edge of the line. It was uh, it, it was immediately challenged by Ferrer, who's got match point on a Hawkeye here. He, he stops the point it. to challenge. Yeah, and and they show it outside edge of the line, and Ferrer goes down on one knee and just bows his head as if, oh God, I've got to do all this over again. Um, and he and I think he, he think he did get one more chance, didn't he? But he didn't take it. Uh, no, I think that's his only that's his only championship point. 
is, yeah, is that because right? it, it just I mean, stops mid rally. Pretty much falls apart in the ensuing tie break. Um, there's Which a culminated in that cramp that you described, Catherine, because. That was the moment that I'll never forget, watching side on and then to watch it on TV afterwards was was fascinating. Just to see Ferrer embroiled in a 25-shot rally, lose it, and as he sort of stutters to a stop, he just fell over sideways. He's just like a tree being knocked to the ground and just falling in one swoop. And I, I just was so shocked by that. To, to watch this guy of all people felled. It must have felt so good for, for Andy. And I mean, that makes him sound like an absolute <laughs> Machiavellian uh, douchebag, but it must have felt good for Andy Murray, as horrendous as he was feeling, to to outlast David Ferrer, to see David Ferrer be the one that got felled by the conditions and the, the struggle and, and not him. On-court moments that I found similarly shocking. Nadal choking a couple of times in the Wimbledon final of 08 and against Daniel Medvedev when Medvedev came back to force a fifth. Federer sweating against John Millman. Pete Sampras being knocked off the court by Marit Safin. Um, Navratilova being beaten by Conchita Martinez on grass. Uh, and... Bjorn Borg's 1991 comeback with a wooden racket. Those are the sort of things that just jar your sense of what's normal in the world. And watching Ferrer just collapse physically because he can't take any more was, 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 was right up there for me. And just thinking about this, this match, what you were saying, beating, kind of beating Ferrer at his own game a little bit. If you look at the, the paths that their seasons then took, Ferrer had one of his better seasons, but he kept losing finals. He lost in Estoril, Roland Garros, Stockholm, Valencia, and the Paris Masters. He lost those finals. Whereas Murray, the match that I think this, that kind of follows from this for me is the Wimbledon final, where the the conditions that day at Wimbledon were maybe not as humid, but similarly hot and brutal. I remember that Wimbledon final against Djokovic being really hot and the conditions being a big factor in that. And I think for Murray to have had this Miami experience must have served him well in the Wimbledon final. It, you know, he must have been thinking it can't be as bad as Miami again. And we know how Djokovic doesn't like the heat. So I think if, if, if Murray had, a, had an experience of getting over David Ferrer in heat and humidity, he probably knew he could get past Djokovic in those conditions as well. Um, I just think it's interesting to just to look at what happened afterwards. Um, it feels yeah. significant to look at Ferrer's side of things as well. I can't find the original quote for this, but various people citing a lot of Ferrer's retirement press conferences last year when he was asked to pick pick a match that he would want to play again or a moment in his career that he found the toughest, and this was the one. Wow. This was the one that he thought was the the, the hardest loss because... I think a lot of the stuff that was written about Andy Murray when we all thought he was going to be retiring a year and a half ago, to a slightly lesser extent, applies to David Ferrer. You know, a lot of people kind of took Murray to be the kind of man taking on the superheroes in Federer, Nadal and Djokovic. And, you know, he, Murray, obviously an incredibly talented player and with an enormous skill set himself. And Ferrer kind of feels like, 
the kind of slightly lighter version of Andy Murray in a way. You know, he's got all the same attributes of determination. He just doesn't quite have the skill set that Murray's got. Um, so I think I think the fact that those two faced off in a match like this is quite it's quite poignant as well. Um, you know, they're, they're kind of similar in a way. And I think Murray really respects David Ferrer. He said in his mm. in, in the in the um, press conference after and in that on-court interview, Ferrer doesn't doesn't get the respect he deserves. He's a yeah, bloody he, good no, player. It's always wound Murray up, yeah. there, hasn't he? Murray's always been absolutely at pains to let everybody he, he know actually, how good this guy is. He actually said on on court. You know, usually those those on court interviews, especially as he looked like he just wanted to get out of there as quickly as possible. He looked he looked really ill, actually. Mm. Andy Murray in that trophy ceremony, really ill. Um, they made worse when they started blowing a load of bubbles in his face. <laughs> yeah, really bizarre. <laughs> um, he 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 said he said. Uh, I always get asked when I'm going to play David Ferrer. Oh, you know, you're you're you know you're the heavy favourite for that. He said everyone always expects me to win. I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> he's a really <laughs> difficult player um yeah and you could you could you could see he was doing that andy murray face in this on-court interview with the really perky uh <laughs> the perky master of ceremonies he was like no this is david ferrer and david ferrer who was absolutely crestfallen just gave him this like just such a heartfelt you you get me i feel seen look um, and it was it was lovely. It was really lovely. I, I got um, I got called to the gym to do my post match interview with Murray when he was on the bike because he couldn't he couldn't stand up straight and sort of without moving his legs around. You know, he, in order to stop cramping, he had to stay on the bike. Um, and so I did my interview with him there, and and I asked him about the the fatigue and how you how you keep going in those conditions with that much running when you because so there were so many rallies that were 20 20 shots plus and they're just you felt like they're both daring each other to keep the rally going and i said what is it what is it like to feel that and he said look it's not the running he said i could we could all go on a treadmill for for six hours not three hours it's it's the changing of direction and most importantly it's the decision making the constant requirement to make a decision about what you're going to do next he said that's the thing that's so tiring and he he yeah i i think it was one of those where he's quietly incredibly proud of himself um but he's hurting so much there's so little left in the tank that he it looks like he's lost yeah, because they flashed, flashed up a graphic, um, I think in the second set or perhaps in the early stages of the third, you know, the, the distance run by each player graphic and and uh, both of them are about two and a half kilometres. And I actually thought that's a really misleading graphic because that doesn't sound like very much for sort of an hour and a half of of physical exertion. But that's all sprints. That's all explosive movement. That's not going for a two and a half kilometer run. That's whilst being constantly stressed. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I mean, as you very eloquently explained, you know, we're we've chosen these matches because they are matches that have taken on even more significance with the benefit of hindsight. And I was watching that, thinking, how much of your canister did this? Did this drain? 
Andy? How, what proportion of his total canister did does a match like that take out of an individual? Mm. It was great. It was a great experience to relive it. Yeah, because I mean, as as a as a general rule, I don't actually watch that much sport that isn't live. I think mainly because normally there's live sport to watch. <laughs> um, but also, I, I've always thought that maybe it's a bit of a diminished experience. I, I was reading a piece from one of the great writers, Brian Phillips, in The Ringer, and he was he was talking about how kind of watching watching live sport, watching old tapes of sports, a bit like going to the Natural History Museum. It, you know, and he says it's not the same when you know the tiger isn't going to eat you, you know, <laughs> because sport lives in the kind of uncertain moment and you know it's the unpredictability of it which is what makes it so great but I think using using Tennis Relived and watching these past matches we're not necessarily doing it for watching the match necessarily we are it's it's something to do it's great it's a great communal experience to watch these matches together Tennis Relived it's something to do (laughs) well new slogan (laughs) absolutely but it's also just it makes you think of things you you'd forgotten about and it it or do research that you would never normally do and have conversations like this that we wouldn't normally have. And that that's what I absolutely love about it. I, I also like to, to see it through 46-year-old eyes in my case rather than, I mean, we'll go back and we'll be watching some matches I watched as a teenager or, or even younger. And, and I'm always curious to see how, how I'll respond to it. But, but I think that the truly great sporting occasions, even when you know the result, you still find yourself clenched a little like your stomach is churning just a little even though you know the result will turn out a certain way um the best sporting and i found that towards the end of that third set admittedly i was plate spinning my kids coming in and out of the house and and uh trying to cook up the most amazing sunday roast which i did um but I was still on edge watching the end of that match. I, I, I couldn't help waiting it. to see if those potatoes were fluffy on the inside, crisp on the outside. It was a it was a tense time. David's powers of multitasking are incredible. He was <laughs> he was watching this match. He was cooking roast dinner. He was doing some stern parenting. When <laughs> <laughs> they're just not quite as good as I sort of think that they are and then i find myself getting in trouble because i've overestimated my ability (laughs) (laughs) as Catherine's uh, knowing (laughs) glance will tell you because she's witnessed it for about the last 13 (sighs) years sorry just one last thing i went back to listen to episode 35 of of the tennis podcast in (laughs) in preparation for this do you remember what you were doing the day after the um Miami final, Catherine. You said something which made me laugh. No, I don't, but I am said, very anxious. Uh, you said you're experiencing sympathy cramps from <laughs> <laughs> from having watched Marion Ferrer. <laughs> and, um, uh. and, and David, something we haven't mentioned is what is what you were doing in Miami 2013, which was playing tennis with uh, Simon Briggs and Laura Robson. Yes. Yeah, I was. We, we were uh, Laura's m- racket manufacturers asked Simon and me, as the only British media representatives there, to come and hit with a Wilson racket. I, I suspect that they expected that we would give them some sort of publicity or something, but we didn't. <laughs> apart from this, uh, seven so go years back on, and buy that um, racket. That's seven years old. <laughs> well. 
don't worry. They've, they've, they, they gave us both a racket, which is very nice. And it's still the same racket I've got today. They're still the same strings in that racket seven years on. And uh, it's the racket that I used to lose to Matt and Catherine. So there we have it. <sighs> Great days. I don't think um, you're going to be getting a check in the post from Wilson. <laughs> no no sorry wilson uh you can sponsor us if you like <laughs> ah, right so we will be having more tennis relived in the weeks to come from monte carlo and rome and madrid and queens and wimbledon and french open i'm quite looking forward to it this is great yeah david looks forward to the past <laughs> yeah my kind of thing it is indeed uh, so, something to do matt uh, have we have we got any shout outs? We have, yes. Uh shout outs to David Ryan, to Christine Marlowe, and to David Appleman. Oh, we're David centric. David and David, top blokes, and Christine, thank you very much for your support. So superb. Uh backing our Kickstarter at the start of the year. Um also a big thank you to Butler, our mascot throughout the year, the wonderful dog Butler, um, who uh who we just have a look at pictures of whenever we're a bit down. Um and make sure you get yourself on our newsletter, and it's even better at the moment because you get our isolation diaries within our newsletter. So go on our Twitter or go down the show notes of your, your phone right now and you'll be able to sign up to the newsletter. Uh, isolation diaries include jigsaw doing, which Catherine does a lot of. That's all of. I've got, folks. Uh, yeah. Uh, although she is one day going to unpack her suitcase, it's uh, it's four weeks now. Yes, yesterday was the four week anniversary of me packing the suitcase. Right. Okay. Uh, there's our Reddit community as well. If you would like to meet fellow tennis podcast listeners and chat away about the sport, uh, do tell your friends and your family when you're on your zoom calls uh isolating that if they just have one click of a button and if they like tennis they can listen to our show and we've got 650 plus episodes in the archive and many more coming your way because we ain't finished yet folks uh we'll be back next week we'll we may well come back midweek as well the way we're going uh but uh we'll <laughs> Catherine's looking at me as if to say we haven't <laughs> talked about that uh, <laughs> But, you know, what, what can I say? It might happen. Uh, but we'll definitely be back next week. possibly break? Well, I've got ideas. Mm. And we've also got next week our listener questions special that we recorded pre-end uh, of the world. And uh, and that, that'll be interesting to listen back yeah, to. Yeah, David giving uh, tourist tips like for Rome. Tennis podcast relived. <laughs> uh, we'll be coming your way next, <laughs> next From week. From a simpler time. And, yes. And then we've got our Monte Carlo relived in a couple of weeks' and time. And Fed Cup. So Monte Carlo it. and Fed Cup. Yeah. yeah. And Fed Cup too, yeah, which we're going to do in a couple of weeks' time. So, Matt, Catherine, thank you very much. Thank you for listening. And uh, we'll be back with you next week. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 